Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome in. We're glad you're here at the Three Martini Lunch. Jim, congratulations. I know it's been 48 hours almost since the Jets got their first win of the season, but since you weren't here yesterday, I didn't want that to go unnoticed. So uh, I hope you're fully recovered and ready to drink martinis. I'm sober now and soon won't be. No, it was, you know, can I just observe, like, you know, again, as a, as a Bears fan, you've gotten to enjoy this a few times this, uh, this season. You know, you wake up the day after your team wins, the sun's shining a little bit brighter, you can hear the birds chirping, everything's just kind of happier. You know, I should not let this affect my mood so much. Well, Sam Darnold's spleen is doing well, and Jim's ready to vent his, so we'll get Look, to that. You know, <laughs> he took on Dak Prescott, and you know what he did, Greg? What? You beat him mono to mono. Oh, very good. Very good. Mono a mono, darn it. But you get the idea. I do get the idea. Hey, we got a brand new sponsor today. That's good news. It's uh, called Figs. Uh, Figs is the maker of fantastic uh, gear for medical professionals uh, primarily. But you know what? I've tested them out, and they're pretty comfy for everybody. So we'll talk about that a little bit, too. Wearfigs.com is where you want to go to order that good stuff. Uh, Jim, let's start with our bad martini, actually, because uh, we're going bad, good, and crazy today. And yes, at least once more, we're going to be talking about the NBA in China, because as we mentioned Last week, we were talking about Steph Curry, and he was saying how complicated it was, and we don't understand the history of China as well as we need to, to really comment on whether concentration camps are a good idea or not, or whether crushing people who just want their their freedoms to uh, remain in Hong Kong is a good or a bad thing. Uh, we hadn't heard from LeBron yet, and you said, man, LeBron, along with Steph, was one of these people who could just stand up and say, you know what, I don't care about the ramifications, I'm successful enough. I'm just going to let her rip. Well, we've heard from LeBron now, and, well, let's just say that LeBron didn't come through the way we are hoping for. Here's what he said. We all talk about this freedom of speech. Yes, we all do have freedom of speech, but at times there are ramifications for the negative that can happen um, when you're not thinking about others. You know, you're only thinking about yourself. So um, I don't believe, uh, I don't want to get into a, a, word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl. Um, with Daryl uh, Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on, on, on the situation at hand, and um, and he spoke. And uh, so many people uh, could have been harmed, uh, not only financially, but physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, so just be careful what we, what we tweet and we say and what we do, even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be uh, a lot of negative that comes with that too. Jim, I don't know what's most annoying here. The fact that he thinks that the general manager of the Houston Rockets is the one who's uneducated, the idea that he's really concerned that people could have been harmed and the first word out of his mouth was financially, and then he's talking about how people could have been harmed physically, emotionally, and spiritually by calling attention to the abuses of the Chinese. So unless he's talking about the people in the concentration camps, and I'm pretty sure he's not, um, this is just a disgrace. Yeah. His silence was an ominous sign last week. Look, you can argue about who's the current best player or whether Steph Curry's overtaking him. But when most people think the NBA, they think of LeBron James. David French used to argue about whether argue that he was better than Michael Jordan. I think we can stop that argument now. You and I, we, look, we'll be very critical of the Chinese government. Lots of writers will be, lots of activists, lots of people in the political realm will. And look, if the Chinese government ever decided to declare war on the three martini lunch, folks, you wouldn't be listening to us. <laughs> you know, and we'd get hacked or uh, enormous pressure. I you know the, the Chinese government has an enormous amount of leverage about all kinds of people here. One of the great things about being LeBron James 
is that you're LeBron James and you would presumably be above any of this stuff. What are they going to do? You know, uh, you know, try to shut down LeBron James. If there's anything we've seen over the years, nobody could shut down LeBron James except the rest of the Los Angeles Lakers. Apparently, You'd have the stature that you'd have the fame. Last week on Sports Talk Radio, I was hearing people saying, well, if LeBron comes out and says about this and he ends up losing a great deal of money from, you know, through the NBA, this puts him on par with Muhammad Ali. This puts him on par with a guy who at the pinnacle of his career, or maybe a little bit past the pinnacle, uh, who was willing to make an enormous financial sacrifice to stand up for what he believed was right. And he basically would be declaring there are some things in life that are more important than money, and there are some things in life that are more important than fame. And LeBron James did not do that. And in fact, he did the opposite. He really, from those comments, it really sounds like Daryl Morey has done something wrong. And that Daryl Morey is the villain in this story. And when he talks about people being emotionally good, Greg, I'm interpreting that as he hurt the feelings of the Chinese government. Yes. The Chinese government should have its feelings hurt. When you run concentration camps, you should have your feelings hurt. That's the absolute minimum consequence that could happen for something like this. Um, a good chunk of today's jolt was all about this. And it was just, just livid. Um, and let's not forget, you know, I guess considering their past animosity and criticism, I guess we could look at the bright side, Greg. We finally found a position in which LeBron James and Donald Trump agree. And not the, the way you would want it to. Uh, just a couple of follow-ups here. First of all, LeBron tweeted after this uh, saying, let me clear up the confusion. I do not believe there was any consideration for the consequences and ramifications of the tweet. I'm not discussing the substance. Others can talk about that. No, I think it was pretty clear uh, that you uh, were concerned about the consequences and the ramifications. Maybe your shoes wouldn't sell. Maybe your jersey wouldn't be uh, on the, the store shelves for people to buy anymore. I think we understood you perfectly, Mr. James. Yeah, and look, one of the great ironies here is that the issues that going on at work between the treatment of the, of the Uyghurs and the treatment of the protesters in Hong Kong Greg, it's police brutality. It's government abuse of authority. It's not respecting the rights of minorities to be citizens and treated equally in the eyes of the law like everyone. These are all the issues that LeBron and Steve Kerr and so many other professional athletes in the NBA and across, you know, in the NFL and other places have spoken up about. Unless there be any confusion here, I think they're right to do this. I think they should speak up about these issues. You know, I think they should always be feel free to say, this is what I think is, this is going wrong. And I could go, you know, as much as I didn't like the kneeling players, I could see where they're coming from, right? But all of a sudden, when it's Chinese cops beating people up, then all of a sudden LeBron's like, ah, oh, it's so complicated, I just can't understand. All of a sudden, when it's the Uyghurs being put in concentration camps, all of a sudden, look, this is just so complicated, I just don't feel like I know enough to comment. This is absolute horse pucky, and Lord knows I wanted to say another word right there, Greg. Um, and so I hope this does an enormous damage to the public uh, reputation of the NBA, they're very clear. They're extremely tough on the American, American cops, American system of government, us as a society and our failures. But the moment you've got $500 million a year at stake in the Chinese market, these guys will shut down like a clam. That's, That's the only metaphor that popped in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, talk about figs. This is a much happier thing. Uh, yesterday, I happened to have a regular checkup. When you go to the doctor or the dentist or different folks, you see a lot of different people there. And they're on their feet all day long. Some take your vitals. Some check you in. Some take you to the uh, exam room. Then you got the doctors themselves. And so there's just lots of different people. Nurses, doctors, dentists, people who work in healthcare, and they're great people. And so we're really lucky to have them in our lives. And uh, one of the things that 
you admire about these people is that they're on their feet all the time. And you just want to make sure that they are comfortable. And that includes their scrubs. What these amazing people do every day is more than a job. And what they wear is more than a uniform. So they need scrubs and other gear that should help them feel good and perform at their best. And I'm not a doctor. Jim, you're not a doctor. We don't even play doctors on the three martini lunch most of the time. Maybe when there's an Ebola outbreak or something, we, we dabble in it. But I got the chance to order a couple of things here, courtesy of Figs. I got the uh, uh, the active wear jacket. I didn't particularly need the scrubs. You don't need that in radio. But uh, the jacket, uh, perfect time of year. It's light. It's It keeps you warm on those brisk mornings. It's very comfortable, and it's got a ton of pockets. The doctors can keep their stethoscopes and stuff in there, their thermometers, whatever else they need to carry around, nurses too. Just very handy to have that much uh, storage space uh, in your jacket. Also got a pair of really, really comfortable and soft socks. So Figs makes good on its promise. They make good stuff. It's really comfortable. And uh, if you're in the medical field or know of someone who is, uh, it's a great thing to have for them. You know, Greg, I'm just going to observe. I hope to not need to run into many medical personnel in a hospital anytime soon. Right. But God forbid I have a heart attack and they're rushing me into the door and they're rushing me into the emergency room and you know, surgery is required. I'm not saying my first thought is going to be how do their scrubs fit? But if they look like they got dressed in the dark or it's a terrible fit, I might just feel a little bit nervous about their ability to gauge spatial relationships and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm going to turn it down. I'm not going to say don't operate on me. I'm just going to observe it makes an impression. Figs is an amazing company that is making scrubs stylish and functional for the people who deserve it most. For years, nurses, doctors, dentists, and other awesome medical professionals were forced to wear scratchy, ill-fitting scrubs. Not only were they ugly and uncomfortable, but they weren't designed with innovative technical properties to protect and hold life-saving tools. I don't want the surgery saying, wait a minute, I just had my tool right here. Where's my stethoscope? You know, things like that. That's a kind of undermines. Look, we have really good doctors in this country. And I hope doctors listening will say, oh, Jim's being snarky. I'm going to keep that in mind next time we need to administer the anesthesia. Um, <laughs> keep in mind, in addition to all the other qualities of their products, Figs gives back and you can too. Because every time you shop at Figs, they give scrubs to healthcare providers in need around the world through their Threads for Threads initiative. To date, Figs has donated hundreds of thousands of sets in more than 35 countries. And there is stuff on the website, like the jacket I got, uh, that uh, you don't even need to be a medical professional, although a lot of it on there, of course, is geared in that direction. So whether you're one of the amazing humans that works in our healthcare or someone that just wants to say thanks to these deserving folks, Figs is going to make that easy by providing you with 15% off your first purchase by using our code MARTINI. So get ready to love your scrubs or whatever you get at wearfigs.com because there's a lot to choose from. But you need to head to wearfigs, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com and enter our code MARTINI at checkout. All right, Jim, a lot of courage not seen from LeBron James. But there was a lot of courage actually seen on cable news, I believe, last night. And it came from MSNBC of all places. Chris Hayes was talking about the path of least resistance in so many different areas. And he was actually beginning his uh, commentary by talking about how the NBA completely wilted when it came to China's treatment of the Uyghurs, of oppressed Christians, their social credit scores. He didn't get into a lot of the details, but he talked about how the NBA caved. It was the path of least resistance. Then, naturally, he accused the Republicans of taking the path of least resistance by refusing, for the most part, to criticize President Trump. And there's certainly some validity to that. And then he spent most of the time talking about his own network, NBC, 
and specifically the Ronan Farrow story, the Harvey Weinstein story that Ronan Farrow eventually broke, not on NBC, and now Ronan Farrow's new book out. Two different clips here. Uh, here's the first one. I feel the tug of it myself as my own news organization is embroiled in a very public controversy over its conduct. As you've probably seen in his new book, Catch and Kill, my former colleague Ronan Farrow contends that NBC News slow walked and then ultimately killed his reporting on Harvey Weinstein's sexual harassment and assault because it was intimidated by Weinstein and didn't want to cross him. Most distressingly, Farrow suggests NBC News was worried about the allegations of sexual assault and harassment against Matt Lauer coming out as a result of reporting on Weinstein and desperately wanted to avoid that. In Farrell's view, he was unable to break through what was effectively a conspiracy of silence from NBC News management. He then spent a little bit of time talking about the NBC News statement that came out, saying that they had absolutely no knowledge of the Matt Lauer rape allegation. And they insist that the reason they spiked Ronan Farrow was because they didn't think the story was ready yet. And Chris Hayes, to his credit, did not let them off the hook. One thing, though, is indisputable. Ronan Farrow walked out of NBC News after working on the Weinstein story and within two months published an incredible article, The New Yorker, that not only won a Pulitzer, but helped trigger a massive social and cultural reckoning that continues to this day. It is the kind of journalism that you want to do as a journalist, that everyone who works in this business should want to facilitate. Of course, there's a reason it took so long for the true story about Weinstein to be told, for the many allegations of him to stay locked in a vault, and that's because time and again, the path of least resistance for those with power was to not cross Weinstein or his army of friends and lawyers. Same goes for the many, many, many other powerful predators that we've come to know about. The path of least resistance is always there. Beckoning seductively with an entirely plausible cover story, you've got bigger fish to fry, this isn't the hill to die on, the story isn't ready. But of course, it's the very ease of that path that makes it the enemy, the kind of work that we as journalists are supposed to do. Jim, I cannot imagine that the executives over at 30 Rock were too excited to see that monologue from Chris Hayes. I'm sure he got some pressure if they even knew he was going to do it before he did it. If they didn't, I'm sure he got some blowback after it happened. But he did it, and it needed to be done, and uh, kudos to him. I don't agree with his politics a lot of time, but that took real courage. It did, and I think we should be watching very carefully to see if Chris Hayes is, you know, suddenly goes on an unscheduled vacation, uh, or if he gets bumped, or you know, for for debate coverage. You know, if, if there's some other retaliation against him by the suits, I can sure it. NBC News uh, executives are not happy about that. But look, it's not like we're not going to notice. <laughs> His story has been really extensively covered, and I've been thinking about there's got to be a whole bunch of people at NBC News who are quietly in their guts saying, "You get him, Hayes." Um, because you, you look at the folks like Chuck Todd, you look at the folks like, um, I was going to say Brian Williams, perhaps that's not the best role model to select here, but there are a bunch of people at NBC News who are not accused of sexual harassment, um, who presumably don't support it, who presumably oppose it and are horrified by what they're hearing. Did some of them know about it? Did some of them hear rumors about it? Did some of them, you know, um, it was kind of fascinating that as this story was breaking, presumably the institution that would have the best sources and be in best position to tell what's going to tell the truth about what actually happened at NBC News would presumably be NBC News. And it sounds like there was a, you know, enormous amount of pressure put upon them. Remember Megyn Kelly's sudden departure? She signed a uh, contract that was like, you know, it was a LeBron level money, right? I mean, you know, an unbelievable amount of money. And then they, you know, very quickly got rid of her. And every once in a while she would make comments about that. And she kind of indicated that there was a, um, 
at NBC News, she was just not supposed to talk about certain topics. Um, the, the, the allegations that, you know, I, I remember marveling when the Lauer news came out. NBC, you know, Today Show announced it. I believe it was Savannah Guthrie who had been sitting next to him for probably years and years. And everybody else on that show had been sitting next to him years and years. This question of like, wait, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, there had to be this extraordinarily strong reaction going through their heads, but everybody had to like, you know, act like it was just another news story. And I don't think it is just another news story at NBC News. This is the sort of thing you should probably have either, first of all, an on, you know, a, a you know, giant town hall meeting, which everybody's allowed to have the airing of the grievances and address what clearly was a very toxic culture there. And then secondly, maybe you want to do that on air. Maybe you want everybody to be able to see and be able to express that. You get that venting of this anger over that. Because it sounds like if you don't, it looks like a cover-up. And the only guy so far who's been willing to talk about it on air like this is Chris Hayes. So kudos to him. Not something you often hear on this podcast. All right. Well, we've talked about LeBron kowtowing to China. We've talked about uh, the toxic culture at NBC. Although kudos to Chris Hayes for bringing it up. So let's talk about something far, far lighter. And that's the end of life as we know it. Jim, let's uh, move to our crazy martini now. Tonight is the uh, latest uh, Democratic presidential debate. There's going to be 12 people on stage. The two new ones who weren't there in September, Tulsi Gabbard, who shockingly will, in fact, turn out tonight. Not only that, I see a banner ad for her literally right now on the uh, computer as I look. She's trying to raise money out of the fact that she has met the debate criteria set by the Democratic National Committee, which is always fun. The other one is Tom Steyer. He, of course, is the uh, environmentalist. Uh, He's the one who was uh, pushing the Trump impeachment long before we ever got to anything related to Ukraine. Uh, But uh, he'll be on the stage tonight, and he just gave a speech, I believe this was yesterday, talking about what's at stake in 2020, because as we all know, every election is the most important election of our lifetimes. We've been hearing that forever. But Tom Steyer is taking that uh, dramatic tension of this election and cranking it up to, at least by my knowledge, Jim, unforeseen levels. Here's what he said. We are in the fight of our lives. Everything is on the table in 2020. They think so, too, because they think if they lose in 2020, that they're... They're going to have to, the rules are going to be fair and they're never going to win again. And they're right. If we win in 2020, they're done forever. But it's scary for us too, because if they win, literally, it could be the end of the world. There you go, Jim. Not a lot of of applause there for Tom Steyer thinking that if they win in 2020, that the Republican Party is dead forever. But that's just the, uh, that's the choice uh, ahead of us. We either kill the Republican Party forever or the planet implodes. So no, no stress whatsoever. They got a lot to unpack here, Greg. So the first thing is he, he apparently has studied the use of the word literally from Joe Biden. <laughs> literally. There's literally no one in the Senate. So the first thing is if you, I, I remember back when Obama got reelected and James Carville wrote a book entitled 40 More Years, uh, why you know Republicans were never going to win again. I remember after Obama was elected the first time, people saying that the Republican Party had uh, devolved into a rump regional party. It was no longer going to be competitive in national elections. Two years later, they won back the House. Four years after that, they won the Senate. And in 2016, Donald Trump won the presidency. Not only that, that he won, but he also won a whole bunch of states that Republicans had not won in many years, uh, including Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan. People are always projecting it's the end of this party or it's the end of that party. And surprise, surprise, it has not shaken out that way. 
So on the one hand, this is kind of you know like it's not just hyperbolic, like it's it's stupid hyperbole. Like the whole we're in the fight of our lives. Okay, fine. At this point, this idea of if we win this one, they'll never win again. I'm sorry, it's just asinine. <laughs> You're, and the second thing is the idea that you know it's literally the end of the world. Let's assume, Greg, that Trump has some sort of button that will either set off World War III with nuclear weapons or some sort of bioweapon that will leave us in a Mad Max hockey masks and, you know, assless chaps, terrible desert future. Pick your apocalyptic scenario that you prefer. Um, Ultron, uh, you name it, you know, whatever, whatever worries you the most that, you know, Trump has a button and that if Trump, you know, wins re-election, he will press that button and sometime shortly after January 20th, 2021, the world will end, the world as we know it will end. Well, at that point, if that really was going on, then all kinds of tactics and all kinds of things that were uh, previously unthinkable suddenly become thinkable because the stakes are high enough. And this is something my colleagues, Kevin Williamson and Jonah Goldberg, and lots of other folks have made this point that, you know, no party ever wants to go into an election and say, you know what, America, the stakes this year really aren't that high. We hope you vote for us, but if we lose, we're not going to be, the country will be okay. I get that. This is why, great, I believe we're heading into, is this going to be the eighth consecutive most important election of our lifetimes? Oh, at least, yeah. Right? I mean, every midterm is the most important midterm election. You know, we're, they're constantly, here's the thing. Either, yes, I guess I suppose the, the stakes could keep getting higher and higher every single time, or this is hyperbole because people need everyone to feel not just fired up and emotional, but also like, look, if... Um, when you and I are joking about, you know, sports or something like that, um, we don't, uh, you know, like we, not, neither of us would say it's time to murder Redskins fans, <laughs> right? We, we enjoy making fun of the Redskins. We may hate the Patriots, okay? But in the end, it's only football. It's only a game. And when it comes to ISIS, when it comes to Al-Qaeda, when it comes to groups that want to kill us, yes, we're perfectly fine with killing them. And in fact, we support policies designed to kill them before they kill us, right? Because the stakes are high enough, because the consequences are high enough. Um, if you make American politics feel like the future of the entire human civilization is at stake, well, then all of a sudden, like, of course you can riot. Of course you can grab people's Make America Great hats again. Of course you can violently assault people when they're you know, eating in a restaurant or something like that, because the, because the fate of the world is at stake, right? Now, look, we know when the fate of the world is at stake, Greg. There's usually a plucky band of underdogs and some sort of giant sci-fi device and a big light going up into the sky. I've seen this in a million movies. Right? <laughs> also, the sky is red. It's always there's always some sort of like giant atmospheric. You know, the sky is a strange color, right? And or zombies. That's when you're allowed to, you know, to. And so this this endless need to, to over dramatize, really kind of again. If you really believe that the state that the you know why does Cesar Sayoc, the guy who sent those uh, those you know thankfully non-functional bombs to all the enemies of Donald Trump. Why do you think he did that? Because he believed that they were enemies, because he believed that they were trying to destroy America and destroy the president, right? Um, why does every terrorist commit their terrorist acts? Because they think the stakes are high enough and they think that traditional methods of attempting to change policies and change society are not, uh, are not you know, don't work fast enough or aren't satisfying enough. You know, they, no, no, the only way we can get what we want is by blowing people up. If you want more terrorism, use rhetoric like this. Tell people that crossing moral lines is justified because the stakes are so high. Steyer probably doesn't even grasp all this kind of stuff. But you know, look, when you constantly tell people this is life and death, this is life and death, people out there are going to treat it like it's life and death. And that's how you end up with guys trying to shoot up softball fields full of congressmen, Greg.
Well, the Democrats are on the stage tonight in Ohio, I believe, at CNN with the uh, hosting duties tonight. So we got 12 people on stage, which means, as we said before, we're not going to get a lot in depth. But uh, what's your prediction tonight? Does uh, Biden stumble all over the Hunter Biden questions, if there are any? Does Warren ever get close to talking about how many taxes she has to raise to pay for her plans? Does uh, Tulsi kneecap anybody else? What's your prediction here? Well, my guess is Biden will do some sort of high dudgeon response of how dare you ask that question? How dare you attack my family? Coupled with his most recent uh, spin, Greg, which is there is absolutely nothing wrong, nothing immoral, nothing unethical about what, what my son did. And if I'm elected president, he and no other member of my family will ever do it again without ever acknowledging the contradiction. there. Um, I, I, I wrote in the corner a little bit earlier today. I think tonight could be kind of boring. Uh, and that's not, you know, trying to be snarky. The first weird thing is that I feel like this debate, usually debates kind of, you know, you know, uh, dominate the news cycle for the preceding 24 hours or so. Uh, look, we got the situation in Turkey with the Kurds. We've got, uh, as we just mentioned at the top of the show, LeBron and the NBA controversy. The House is beginning impeachment. Do it all in secret. <laughs> but, you know, like lots of big events are going on. So maybe this, you know, isn't going to get the attention that it usually does unless something really dramatic happens like Biden bleeding from an eye again or something like that. Uh, the other thing is that, I mean, that this is really bad news for the Cory Bookers of the world, the Julian Castro's, the Beto O'Rourke's. Amy Klobuchar is still running for president. I, I just had to check on that. Amy Klobuchar is a senator from Minnesota. In the end, it's really tough for these folks to stand out to begin with. It's really tough to stand out in a news site environment such as this. And for, for Biden and for Warren, and I guess you, I mean, people will be happy to see Bernie Sanders. He'll get a big ovation. Everybody's kind of happy to see him alive. I think also, look, if you're 78 years old, you just suffered a heart attack. I think a lot of Democrats are looking, okay, we can't really, this can't nominate this guy. And as for Biden and Warren, it's too early to really throw haymakers at each other. You probably want to do that like right between like maybe two weeks before people start voting at the Iowa caucuses and that's in February. So I think they're going to, you know, be like two, two fighters kind of gauging each other, you know, maybe a couple of feints, but no actual direct shots at each other just because I don't think either one of them is ready. And, you know, again, why have that fight before you're ready? Uh, we all saw what happened when Julian Castro went after Biden. To the extent anyone noticed that Julian Castro was running for president, his unfavorables <laughs> went very high. So um, the other question, you know, the, the one fun thing of the night, Greg, could be who does Tulsi Gabbard decide to fillet? Well, we said it's probably not Joe, based on what you said last week. So uh, might be a little more on Liz Warren. I don't think that's actually happened in a debate. Uh, so that's possible. I'm looking forward to seeing what Beta wants to ban this time. He's now against uh, tax-exempt status for churches. He wants to ban... AR-15s. I'm thinking maybe gasoline uh, could be next on his list. Here's my prediction, Greg. Yeah. People say we're going to do this. I'll tell you, you bet we're going to confiscate your heterosexual marriages. <laughs> Just combining the previous two. Okay. You, you, no, you're going to, the government will ban them and you'll have to turn them in. Turn in your certificates, rings, all that kind of stuff. Government will pay you for fair market value, but that's it. It's mandatory. <laughs> And uh, do you think it'll come full circle for Bernie Sanders if uh, if there's a lot of questions about Hunter Biden and he's asked to comment, he'll say, I'm sick and tired of hearing about Hunter Biden like he did about <laughs> Hillary's emails. First of all, Greg, that's a pretty good uh, Bernie Sanders impression. I salute you on that. Uh, remember, billionaires and billionaires and big banks. It was interesting because the way he said it against Hillary, you could be interpreted as I'm tired of hearing about it, meaning this is a real problem and this issue is never going to go away. Democrats, what are you thinking nominating this woman? Or you could interpret it as a defense of Hillary Clinton of this is not a real issue and why are we talking about it? 
Um, it'll be interesting if he goes with that exact wording. I think the way he did it, I mean, Hillary interpreted it as a, ah, thank you, Bernie. Uh, whereas I think there could be a certain, you know, I, I don't know if he meant it that way. I thought there was a certain sense of Democrats, what are we doing? You know, this is a woman who's, you know, this issue is never going to go away. It's never, you know, so we'll see. I think everyone's, there's going to be a lot of patting on the head of Bernie. Good. It's, it's good to see you up and around, Bernie. And, and you know, honestly, everybody is glad to see him. But um, again, 78, had a heart attack. Everybody wants to see Bernie Sanders enjoy his golden years. Yeah. I think everything's pretty much going to be the same when all the dust settles tonight. Jim, good to have you back. I guess we'll see you again, what, Friday? Uh, yes, uh, going up for some meetings in New York, but I will be back on Friday, everyone. So try to hold on without me. However, there will be three Martini Lunch podcasts on Wednesday and Thursday, so be sure to not miss those. Also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a great review with as many stars as possible over at iTunes. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thank you very much for being with us today. And don't forget, for 15% off, head over to wearfigs.com, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S, wearfigs.com, and enter the code martini at checkout.